walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Welcome back to the Camino Podcast, episode 69. I'm Dave Whitson. Nobody asked me my name. It's now early May 2023, tipping towards mid-May, and that marks the beginning of the annual rituals of the end of the school year. It's a lot of grading, a lot of writing. It also, happily, signals for me the peak of training time, getting myself fully ready, with my summer walk just a month and a half off. Before I disappear for summer, and who knows how long beyond that, I still have at least four more episodes to finish off, counting this one. When I started out with this newest batch of episodes, I knew the Via Podiensis series would be a chunk of it, but once I shifted to pairing a walking discussion with a deeper dive into some thematic area, it effectively doubled the number of episodes focused on that route. All things considered, this will be one of my most sustained stretches of podcast production. It is an admittedly low bar to clear, with at least 15 episodes over a handful of months. But I realize a lot of people listening are mostly focused on Spain for their pilgrimage interest. I hope the lengthy Via Podiensis series doesn't feel like a tangent. It's important to me, though, to complete the arc before summer. In part because I've had a couple of these interviews still to come in these upcoming episodes, finished for three or four months now. And I don't want to leave those pilgrims hanging any longer. The big news today is that, finally, we're heading south from Kaur. We're back on the GR65 now, climbing to the clifftop overlooking the lot, waving goodbye to both the river and the town, and proceeding into the second half of the Via Podiensis. By most counts, we'll officially cross the midpoint today, between Le Puy-en-Volet and Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port, and, if the time of year is right, get our first taste of sunflower country. By the time we're done with this section, we'll be in beautiful Moissac, home to perhaps the finest Romanesque cloister in France, and a contingent of singing nuns. I'm joined for the walk by France Fair of Vancouver, B.C., who has published a memoir of her walk on the Via Podiensis. For the second half of the episode, I'm joined by Dr. Mark Gregory Pegg, professor of history at Washington University. And this discussion continues a theme from past episodes in this series, especially in the conversations about Saint-Roche and the theft of Sainte-Foy's relics. Namely, (laughs) that everything you think you know is a lie. I didn't intend for that to be the prevailing theme of these episodes, but here we are. Today's historical deception is the Cathars. Because here's the thing about the Cathars, according to Dr. Pegg. They don't exist. They never existed. They are a fiction. So in this episode, as we walk from Caor to Moissac with Francfer, we pass through villages and towns that were ravaged by the Albigensian Crusade in the early 13th century, where so-called heretics were persecuted and where whole new towns were built as those lands were effectively colonized by the North. 
And yet, as Dr. Pegg will explain, there were no Cathars. And certainly at the beginning, there's no evidence to suggest there was even heresy. Are you confused? Great. Stay tuned. Franz Fair, from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, is the author of On Foot in France, An Unforgettable Adventure on the Camino de Santiago. You can find her online at onfootinfrance.com. Thank you again for speaking with me today. We will be talking about the section of the Via Podiensis between Caror and Moissac. But before we do, I want to talk a little bit about your background. And so let's just start with this. What brought you to the Via Podiensis? Well, I walk in 2019, mm-hmm. uh, the, my big Camino. But this whole thing started many years before. In 2015, I walked some section in Spain. And it's during that trip that I met two French-Canadian women. I recognized them. They had a badge on their backpack. So <laughs> I said, bonjour, and we talked for a few minutes. And they told me they had started their Camino in Le puy en So they had been already walking for five or six weeks. And they said, oh, walking over the Pyrenees was not difficult, was fun. That day, I decided (laughs) that I would do that myself. So that was 2015. 2017, we went to France. We walked nine days only. We wanted to kind of test it a bit. Mm -hmm. Still in the idea that eventually we would do a longer Camino. And then 2019, it happened. We were ready. We were physically more ready, maybe. We had made sure that we were walking a lot and everything. We had the right backpack. We felt a little bit more confident, but still there was a bit of uh, anxiety. Of course, it was a big thing for us. We were 60 years old. We didn't know how it was going to be. But I wanted to walk in France, I guess, because I speak French. And Mm -hmm. for me, I thought, well, that would be a good thing to do, just to be there and be surrounded by a lot of French. That's a a little bit how it came. And then you you made the walk, and then you wrote a book about your experience on foot in France, an unforgettable adventure on the Camino de Santiago. What were you hoping to communicate or convey through that book? When I came home, I don't know, there was something inside me that needed to come out. I had so many words in my head and my heart was still on the Camino. I think I left it there. I don't know. (laughs) I would wake up in the night and I would start writing stuff because it needed to come out. I kind of knew I was going to write a book before I walked. So I took a few notes during the trip, but not so much. I wanted to explain to people who don't know what it is to walk 39 days with a backpack. I kind of wanted to share it. I thought that some people would be interested. Well, my family, my siblings probably don't know much about it. So I thought, of course, that could be interesting for them. But I wrote the book in English and they only read in French. So they're waiting for the French version, which (laughs) would come out this year. I'm still working on it a little bit. I knew there was not many books about the Via Podiensis. Mm-hmm. There was a lot about the Camino Frances. I knew it because I read a ton of them. But I thought, you know, maybe that could be interesting for people who want to walk in France. They would have 
a bit of my journey and find out a few things. It was a different challenge. I guess I needed that challenge in my life at that time. I had time because I'm not working anymore. And I started to work on the book and then the pandemic came. So I had more time because I was <laughs> no traveling, but I was no stress. I, I didn't say, oh, well, this needs to be done fast. No, I was trusting that it would be ready when it would be ready. So I was really patient. It taught me to be patient, just like the Camino taught me to be a little bit more patient. I had a lot of help. My oldest son came. He made sure that the words were fine and everything. So it was published, yeah, in September 2022. It's nice to say I have a book, but it doesn't change my life, really. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm happy that you want to talk to me you know, because I have a book and because I walk, but it's not a life changing. You don't write a book to change your life. One of the things that I thought was interesting about your book is usually when I'm reading a pilgrim memoir, an account of a pilgrimage, you kind of expect the very beginning of the book to be the start of the journey and the very end of the book to be the end of the journey. But in yours, that's about two thirds of the book. And when you get to the end of your walk, there's still 25% more book ahead. So there's a lot more in this than just your narration of the actual walk. So what was your thinking there? What's the other information that you include and why did you do that? Yes, I needed to stop by explaining how this idea to walk the Camino came, how I prepared, because mm. you just don't show up on Le Puy-en-Velay or Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port and start walking. There is something that very important that happens before. You know, you get your shoes, you get your bag, you train. And for me, it was part of the journey. I was so excited to prepare for that, that I needed also to tell people this was what's happening in February, in March. We did a long, long walk here on my husband's 60th birthday. He wanted to do something special. We did 33 kilometers. No backpack, but the beginning was the journal, the preparation. Then there was a Camino, of course, the 39 days. And then it was not finished because when I came home, there was more to say, you know, I was still in touch with some of the pilgrims I met. I wanted them to have a place in my book. I wanted to ask them, what was the Camino for you? I wanted to talk about the injuries. I wanted to talk about the Camino blues. There was so much thing in my brain. So it came on the paper and it's in the book. And I think it explained to a lot of people more things than just walking. And I think those parts for me, were important. I couldn't just finish, okay, we got in uh, Roncevalles and that's the end. Boom, I go home. No, there is more than that because the Camino, if you go and you, I know you've been many times more than me, it's never finished, you know, it's in your heart forever. I think that's one of the things that makes the book really interesting and a, a helpful resource to a lot of people who are coming brand new to the Camino that you spell that entire process out. So they can see what that's like from before to after every step in between. Yes. And it's part of my idea too. I want to share it to help other people. And right now, in the last few months, I know there is people who are preparing to go for the first time. And I'm so happy to be able to help them. Yes, I've done it. I've got some experience. I'm not an expert. I mean, there is people who know a lot more than me. 
but with what I live there, what I know, if they have questions and I can answer them, it makes me feel good that I can do that for them now. All right, so let's be helpful. We're going to talk about roughly three stages of the Viapodiensis. I know you walked it in those three stages. I've walked it in these three stages. The guidebooks often organize it in these three. People will walk it however they want, but we're going to organize around them. It's about 76 kilometers total that we're focused on from Kaor to Moissac. And I look forward to having you correct my pronunciation on all of the place names as we go. You're doing pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> well, just give me time. I'll screw some things up. The first section that we have leaving Kaor is to Las Cabanes. Well, I say Las Cabanes. All right. Yeah, you pronounce it a bit, maybe like in Spanish. I do. The S in French is silent, so I say Las Cabanes. I will say it that way from now on too then, <laughs> so thank you for that. So we are leaving Kaor, so get us started from there. What's the walk out from Kaor like? What do you remember? So in Kaor, we left from the Caminula that morning, and we just followed the river mostly to get to the Valentre, the bridge. We had been there a whole afternoon the day before. I want to mention that in Cahors, the day before was super hot, but I wanted to climb the Mont Saint-Cyr <laughs> to see the view of the city because I thought it was very special. And I mean, it was so hot. But anyway, we did it. There's another view of your sleep. So you get to the Valentre. There was nobody on the Valentre. I don't know. It was maybe about eight between 8 and 8.30. There was no other pilgrims. We were alone. So I took a few more pictures because I take a lot of pictures. It's one of the things when I travel, I take lots lots of pictures and I do many things with it when I come home. We cross this beautiful bridge. This is a nice big climb. It's not very long. It's maybe 124 meters, I think. But it's sharp. Oh, it's steep, yes. Yeah. But... At this point, for me, it was day 19. So our legs were pretty strong and we were used to have a backpack. And I guess we probably climbed, but not too fast. For me, it was not a challenge. But it's an interesting place because there are a lot of people who walk this route where they do it in stages. And so there's a lot of people who finish one walk in Kaor and then start again in Kaor. So for some, it is the very first thing they do is climbing up to that hill. Yes, it can be discouraging a little a little <laughs> bit. But the Camino, if everything was flat all the time, it would be a bit boring. Absolutely. I think we just have to say, oh, you look in your guidebook and there is elevation gain. You say, well, just take it easy or go down again. You know, don't need to rush. The fun thing about when you, you arrive at the top, the view on the bridge, a different view, very beautiful. Yeah. At this point, I knew exactly where I was going because I had done this section a little bit less than two years before. And I was not upset to do it again. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like, oh, we know where we're going. We're going to Las Cabanes. I know the jet where I'm going. It's going to be nice. You know, the scenery between Cahors and Las Cabanes, I didn't take so many pictures. I don't think there is nothing extraordinary in the landscape during that day. Yeah, it's kind of a transitional moment because you are leaving behind the costs 
the areas above the lot that you have been walking through for days, you're leaving behind the Lot River, which has been a big companion of yours along the Chemin. It's the last time that you see the lot. But now it's a different landscape. And even before the lot, it was cow country. And now you're kind of going into sunflower country as you head towards Las Caban. Yes, of course, it was more like open field. I took a lot of photos of flowers because for me, it was beginning of June. I know at some point I saw some field of puppies and I love puppies, red puppies, but really there was not so many places between Cow and Las Caban where I cannot even remember where we stopped to have lunch. We always had lunch with us. We never really expected to find a restaurant or a grocery store. We always made sure that we had food with us. There is one reliable stop on this day, but only one, really, La Bastide Marniac, which is okay. right around the midpoint, about 12 kilometers. It's one of those places that's a cafe and an epicerie and a post office and you know a few other things all combined together. So it's handy. It's a nice little stop, but that's your only option if you want a proper sit-down lunch in the middle of the walk. I remember we stopped. There was a picnic table. Mm-hmm. We stopped to have a snack and the lady started to walk toward us and I said, bonjour, and she was French. So we had a little chat and maybe I asked her, oh, oh, where are you staying tonight? And she said, I don't know. I think she was just starting walking. And I said, oh, well, we're going to Le Nid des Anges. It's really nice. We stayed there before. Oh, she said, I'll call them. And she did call and she told me she got the last bed. And she was very happy that I gave her the tip that it would be a good place. And it is a good place. I have stayed there as well. I love it. Yes, it's a lovely place. There's nothing quite like that dining room, the converted old cellar with the curved stone roof above it. So let's fast forward to Las Caban. We've made it to the end of the day, the end of the walk. Relax a bit, taken advantage of the little epicerie in the gîte, had a cold drink. What stands out to you about the village? The first time in 2017, we did walk in the small village. It is not so much to see, but I'm a very curious traveler. When I go to a town, a city, I need to go and see what's around and because I want to take pictures. But that time, we even didn't walk in the village. We just stayed at the gîte. We did laundry, of course. This jet has a super nice garden where you can hang your clothing. And then we had a beer in the front because the sun was there. And I love the sun. So I was in the sun. <laughs> and there was a man there. He came and he kind of sat by us, didn't say much. And I started to speak with him in French, thinking he was French. But he was Spanish. He was from Cordoba. And I speak a little bit of Spanish, actually. So it gave me a chance to practice a little bit with him. He was very happy. I could say a few words with him. And then there was this mass. I think it was six o'clock. Yeah. Which I knew about. And of course, you don't have to go because I'd say there was maybe 11 pilgrims that went. I count according to my photo. But this time, I really wanted to go again because I thought it was a very special moment. I'm not a religious person. I guess in Le Puy-en-Velay, I even didn't make it for the Mass. I arrived at the very end of the whole thing. But this place, for me, I needed to go back. I needed to go back and I needed to be a little bit more grounded and more focused on what was happening there. It was the same celebration, the same priest. 
but I was a different person. I was a different pilgrim on that trip. There was something a little bit more serious in me that I really wanted to get from that special moment. So that was nice. There was three ladies there from Norway. They were sitting near to us. We ended up having dinner near them and they were not speaking any French. So my husband was very happy. At least that time he had somebody <laughs> he could speak with. And one of the ladies had a big blister and she couldn't walk the next day. And they asked me if I would help them to call to get that lady a taxi for the next morning to get to uh, Lozère. I said, sure. So once again, I was helpful. So we tried to call. And anyway, I arranged that. They were very happy. The dinner was really nice. Let's talk about food there. <laughs> Chicken fricassee. I think that was the same thing I had for dinner the previous time. And I think a fusion, they always have the same food. Yeah. Because I mean, why make life challenging in that way for them? It's not the same people that are sitting at the table every night, right? Yep. I don't remember the whole thing. Of course, there was wine and there was dessert and the food was good. But Cecile, the host, is just so nice. She's such a friendly woman. And there was some other pilgrim we had met before. There was one we had met previously on the Silly. And I was just starting to know him. But he ended up being in my story quite a lot. We saw him and then we lost him and then we saw him again. And I still at this day now, I'm still in contact with him. So you never know, you make friends so many ways. Yeah, Las Caban is a delightful stop for a few reasons that you mentioned. Cecile is one of the longest running hosts along the walk. She's been doing it for almost two decades and there's such a high burnout rate for hosting because it is so intensive that her staying power is really quite remarkable. And as you say, the priest in that town is equally dedicated to pilgrims. There are not a lot of small villages that still have nightly masses and services along the way. Las Caban is a small village, but that priest is there all summer attending to pilgrims, doing the foot washing ceremony. It's one of the most moving services to be a part of as a pilgrim along the way. So it's a huge part of it. And then there is the sea of sunflowers. If you happen to be there midsummer onward when they're fully in bloom, it is an amazing thing right behind the church and Cecile's Gite. It is just an explosion of yellow. Yes, yes. And everything you said is, is right. It's a fantastic place. But unfortunately, we have to leave it. So we will push on to our next stage, which is Las Caban to Lozère. 24 kilometers. Just like the previous stage, this is another stage that is mostly on footpaths and dirt roads. More than two-thirds of it is unpaved. What do you remember from this walk? We left Azkaban not too late. We always try to leave between 8 and 8.30. There was a Cazelle. A Cazelle, you know, those mm -hmm. old buildings. There was a few. Every time I saw one, I stopped to take a pictures. I mean, they are really <laughs> nice. Addition to what we see along the way, a lot of open field. I really like this section between La Cabin and Lozère. There was the first stop at the Chapelle Saint-Jean. Mm -hmm. So we stop. We always stop. Every time there's a church or a chapel. Of course. I mean, it's an excuse to stop. I mean, why not? Even if it's just for two minutes, there's something nice. And like I say, I don't stop 
to make a prayer. Maybe I should. I don't know. Maybe I'm learning a bit to be a little bit more, <laughs> to stop a little bit more and see my gratitude for everything. I think I understand it more now. But we stopped there. There was a lot of red poppies. The first time we walked, we were in end of September. This time we were early June. The nature is different, right? You talk about yeah. sunflowers. So you were there in... July. Okay, so quite different than me. Yeah, because one month makes a difference. And if you walk in September, the sunflowers are almost dead. <laughs> it's different. I like the scenery, very green. And I love the countryside. This, I like it. It gives you a feel of freedom. And the path, the dirt path is a lot better than the paved. So that's good. We stopped in Moncu because the previous time we didn't stop. I guess we didn't think it was necessary to stop. But this time I thought, no, we need to stop. And we had a couple of reasons why we wanted to stop. Well, we saw the church very quickly, but we needed to find a pharmacy. And that was the first time we had opportunity to find a pharmacy. There was not so much to see in Moncu, I think. It's tricky if you're coming there from Las Caban because there is a really big tower at the center of the village. But if you get there too early, it's still closed. But it is possible to go in and climb to the very top. And then you can see the whole village, the whole valley out beneath you. And it's really quite beautiful, but it doesn't open often until an hour or so after you would have already passed through. Oh, okay. Maybe I didn't really look for that. We went to the tourist office just to see if there was anything. Maybe we got a stamp there. I'm not too sure. Yeah. But that was mostly the pharmacy. And I read that when we are in Moncu, we're halfway between Le Puy and Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port. Yeah. If we know we're doing that, we should say, wow, we're halfway there, right? It's celebration <laughs> time. We get more wine tonight. <laughs> <laughs> you celebrated by going to the pharmacy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. was really needed. On the way to, there is another chapel near Rouillac, I think it's called. And there were some old frescoes from the 18th century. We had lunch right there. There was a picnic table right in the front. At that point, both my feet were really sore. I just was getting a little bit annoyed with that. Of course, we had no other choice than walking. And later on, there was a lot of noise. Puff, puff, puff. And every time the path was starting, I would be jumping. And you know what they were? What? It was not gun, but it was like a sound of a gun. But they were to chase the birds from the cherry trees. Okay. Because that was cherry time, right? June is cherry time. So they were having those automatic path, path, path. And I was thinking, oh, my God, am I going to be okay? <laughs> that day, I remember that the landscape was fantastic and it was even warmer than the day before and we were starting to run out of water and there was a little fountain with a funny little man <laughs> you remember that one right before Lozère. yes we stopped there and my husband refilled his bottle and there was a cooler with some drink some can of coke and whatever again my husband was really thirsty we knew also where we were going we were going also to the same gîte, which was Le Gîte Les Figuiers. 
not quite in the village, just halfway, because we enjoyed that place. And when you know a good jit, you say, well, why not going back to the same one, right? Yeah. It's an interesting walk because you mentioned Moncouk, that you didn't go through there the first time. It is a very, very small detour off route. But it's interesting to me every time I go there that the, the route does not actually go through the center. You have to choose to go in. And the same thing later, there's a village called Montlozon, which is up on a hilltop. And it's about a half kilometer detour round trip to go up to the top of this hill village where there is a church and a fountain. And it's hard to talk yourself into doing extra uphill, but <laughs> I go up there for the reason you mentioned. It's often hot in this stretch. There's not a lot of great opportunities for water. So for me, I end up going up there. And otherwise, you you wait on that fountain just before Lozère. But eventually, you make it to Lozère. So you stayed in, in that gîte. I similarly have a go-to gîte in Lozère. It's the gîte communal. And often, the town-run gîtes are very basic and simple. That's not the case in Lozère, where Corinne has been the host there for a number of years, prepares all of the meals. It's a lovely place in the center. So it's nice to know that we have a, a couple of different good gîtes that we can recommend. Yes, and in Lozère, of course, I knew I was going to go to the village square because it's mm. such a beautiful place to be. The previous time, we didn't meet as many pilgrims. When you're only for a few days and maybe September, it's a different crowd or maybe it's not as busy as in June. So we didn't really have as many connections with other pilgrims the first time. We had a lot of time to walk all over the village and I took pictures of all the doors. But that time we already knew a fair amount of nice people. So we sat with them and we had a drink. But then I was so sorry because we had to go back at seven o'clock for dinner. I would have stayed with them and do more <laughs> chatting. And the square is perfect because everybody likes to go there and it's social time, you know. And if you are the same jit, it's great. You can continue your conversation. But if you're not, you got to go back to your jit. And I was looking forward for a nice dinner. We had a ratatouille for dinner. I think we had the same thing also the first time when we stayed there. We had dinner with the three Norwegian ladies. And again, I was great for my husband and uh, the lady who had come by taxi was very happy with her day. You know, at the beginning, my idea of walking the Camino was really like, I like walking. I like to be challenging myself physically. It was still that. But at some point, I realized that there was meeting other people that was more meaningful, that was special. Maybe people I would never see again. Maybe people I would never talk again or write to. I would lose them. But some of them, I was hoping that I would keep in touch. It was important for me to keep in touch when I came back because I didn't want the Camino to be over. <laughs> <laughs> Lozère is another of the most beautiful villages of France that you encounter along the way. It's very popular with artists. So there are lots of small art galleries around the village. And it has a really neat element in that central plaza that you talked about, where the corner of it is upturned. Yes. It's a small thing, but I just find it so entertaining and nice. Yeah, I, I certainly took the picture. And we went into the church too quickly. We saw one of our friends and we went and sat with him. So that time I didn't walk in the village. 
sometimes at the end of the day, you don't have enough time. You know, mm-hmm. got to do your laundry, you take a shower. In theory, you should rest. But me, no, I cannot rest. I need to go and do things. But I try right after dinner, of course, to go to bed because I need my beauty sleep. But Lozerte is certainly deserved the title of one of the most beautiful villages of France. So our last stage from Lozerte to Moissac is the longest that we have to walk through. It's about 28 kilometers. And I feel like it's always a hard day. There's just not a lot of food along the walk. There's not a lot of villages along the walk. The sunflowers start to yield a little bit in this stretch to more of the fruit trees. You talked about the cherries, a lot of peach trees in this section, even some of the first vineyards that you see along the walk. So a mix of fruit starting to take over along this stage. What do you recall? I need to read from my book because that (laughs) morning it was very special. So I thought, you know, instead of me telling you, I'll just read. That's page 168. The title of the chapter is called Rain and Friends. It was going to be a special day. If you know you will have to walk in the rain, you may want to pull the covers over your face, stay warm and go back to sleep. But staying in pajama all day was not an option for me. I did not have pajama, nor could I stay in bed. I had friends to meet in Wasak. That cloudy morning was not a good sign for the day ahead. I was concerned that my boots might still be damp the following morning, even if I could shove some paper in them overnight. This is a trick I learned after rainy days. I must add that when I'm in Vancouver, I do not go on hikes when it's raining. But here in France, on the Chemin de Compostelle, I did not think that I had any other choice. I needed to learn to like walking in the rain or maybe dancing. Life isn't about waiting for the storm to pass. It's about learning to dance in the rain, said Viviane Green, a British writer. It was raining that morning. And you know what? The previous time we had the rain also. Oh, no. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I said, it's not possible. And it, <laughs> like you say, it's a long day. I think for me, it felt longer than 28 kilometers. We left, of course, dressed with our rain jacket. I had rain pants. We started walking and I tried to take some picture of the house with the shutters because I love the different architecture that they have there in France. And there was a place we saw that was some boxes with some cherries and apricots, actually. And I think that was also like a donatibo. It was foggy, it was raining, and it was windy. And my husband said, there was only one place I couldn't get wet. It was my face. It was a miserable day. And (laughs) we had to keep walking because the joy of that day was not the rain. That was that some friend of mine were coming from Toulouse to have visit with us. I had met that friend a few years ago. Her and her son were coming. We had a date at four o'clock in front of the Abbey. We're going to meet and we're going to go have a drink or whatever. And they were going to be able to have dinner with us too at the Gide. As you say, there's not a lot of places to stop. There is one of the most beautiful dovecotes or pigeonnet very early in the walk. And another small chapel as well, Saint-Cernin-du-Bosque. It's one of those churches, one of the few along the way where you actually can ring the bell when you go inside. So 
I always have to call attention to that fact. Other than that, there's one village with food the whole day at Durfort La Capelette, yes. which has a similar setup to La Bastide Marniac, you know, sort of right around the midpoint, one cafe restaurant where pilgrims can stop for food. You know, that's 12 kilometers in. You still have 16 kilometers more, and there's nothing left from that point on. No food, one water spot, maybe if it, the fountain's working at the church of San Martin, but that's about it. So then you're you're walking on and then you get to the end of the day and you're tired and maybe you're wet in your case or hot in my case. And now you have a decision to make because there are two different ways to go into Moissac. And I think you've done both, right? Yes. Yes. The first time we didn't really know that we had really two options. I don't know if we just follow the markers, but we ended up by the top. They call it the hill. So that was kind of like grassy area, I think. And we arrived not too far from the tourist office, I believe. Yeah. And we were trying to get our bearing. We went to the hotel. But that time I said, no, no, I'm not going to walk by the hill. I'm going just to stay on the sidewalk. I don't know if it's shorter or longer. And it's quite long to get to the center of the town. We arrived at a gite and it was not quite open yet. And I understand it cannot be open all the time, but I was getting really, uh, I don't know, frustrated maybe. Because you were soaking wet and you were cold. I was impatient to change my clothing. Yeah. Maybe we had half an hour to wait, which is not too long. So we went to the Abbey and there was a nun there. She saw us all wet and she said, go to the pilgrim's office, she said. He'll give you something warm to drink. I was thinking, oh, I don't want something warm. I just want to change. But we did go. And I understand they there to help the pilgrims. We probably could have something warm, but they also like to keep track of who is coming. Where are you from? And how many days are you walking? All that. So I probably answered the lady. I was not in a good mood at that time. I was in a better mood when I had my shower and I met my friend and we went to a cafe for hot chocolate. But that was a difficult day. That's the reason I think why so many people do what you did and take that flat, direct approach. It is shorter. It's about 500 meters shorter than going up the hill and around. And obviously it's flat. It's not up the hill. But my goodness, I feel like that walk is miserable. I think that might be the worst kilometer of walking on the Via Podiensis, where you have cars just whipping past you. It's a well-traveled road. Moissac is one of the bigger towns along the whole walk. So if you have the energy, the nice thing about the hill, if you were to hit it on a sunny day, which you haven't yet, you can see the whole river valley spread out beneath you. You come in above the abbey, you can see the abbey down below you. It's a really nice approach and you avoid all of that urban sprawl as you come into the center. But once you come into the center and you make it into the little pedestrian area, probably where you got your hot chocolate around the abbey, it's a very pretty area. Yes, we ended up not going inside the abbey that time, but I'm not so sorry because in 2017, we had gone there for one day with my friend, and it's where I had bought my credential. So that time, we didn't go. We didn't go for the pilgrims gathering or whatever. We skipped it all. 
We just stayed at the cafe. We drank hot chocolate. We talked. And then my friend came with us at our gîte, which was La Coquille. So Florian was the young man in charge. He's not there anymore. He just take over the gîte in Condon, Le Champ des Étoiles. He's going to be replacing Jean-Marc and Véronique. And the gîte La Coquille was wonderful because when we got there, Florian said, give me your wet clothes. I'm going to wash it. I was like, oh my God, you're too nice. <laughs> so we uh, had a, a great dinner and we helped with the dishes that night because Florian had a broken arm and he was in a sling. So he couldn't do the dishes. We said, well, we, we're going to do that. So we all did the dishes. And he was very proud to tell us all about the food. Everything was local. What did you say in Moissac? The first couple of times I went, I stayed at Jute Ultrea, which was run by an Irish couple, Ram and Aideen, who were just remarkable. And they have moved back to Ireland. And so more recently, I've stayed at L'Ancien Carmel, which is former monastic center that's up on the hill. So up the steep hill, has a wonderful little cloister, palm tree in the center. It's some extra work going up and down that hill every time you want to go to your jeet, but it's a beautiful facility. Yeah, I wanted to stay there the first time. One good thing in Moissac is all those sculpture from the artist Toutain. You know those women, those kind of bigger women? They yeah. Sometimes it's on the bench. Those are very beautiful. And I think this artist was from Toulouse. There is a nice sculpture in Ovila as well. Yeah. I do think it's important to call attention to what you didn't see Moissac the second time because you had seen it the first. Because the abbey is really quite remarkable. You have the entrance to the abbey, the portal, which is a bit worn down, but remarkable. And then you have to pay to access the cloister in Wasak, but that's for good reason, because it is maybe the best preserved Romanesque cloister anywhere. It's one of the most remarkable works of Romanesque church architecture that survives intact that we can visit on pilgrimage. Yeah, we did visit it the first time. And it's difficult to be a pilgrim and not wanted to visit too. I don't know if people just say, oh, I'm just walking. For me, no, I'm in France now. I'm not going back next week or next month. When I go to Europe, I want to see it all. So it's very intense in a way, you know, but some people I knew, they maybe spend a day. The one other thing that really stands out to me about Wasak is that in the evening, there's vespers in the Abbey Church where the nuns come in and they sing. And it's a beautiful moment. And it kind of brackets the walk that we've talked about here with the blessing and the foot washing in Las Caban. And then the nuns singing vespers in Wasak. Two really great moments for pilgrims on the way. Yeah, we missed it completely. I remember we walked from the cafe and Florian was there standing. And I look at him, I said, well, we didn't go. <laughs> but, you know, it's difficult. You have to, to make choices. Exactly. And sometimes it's not easy for me to see my friend. I had seen her two years before. But, you know, you're learning every time you go, you're learning something new, I think. We have made it to the end of our segment. We have completed our walk into Moissac. For people to learn about your adventures into the Tuscan-like regions that followed, they'll have to pick up your book. And I thank you, Franz, for joining me to talk through this. 
Oh, I thank you, Dave, for inviting me. Dr. Mark Gregory Pegg, professor of history at Washington University, is the author of, among other things, A Most Holy War, The Albigensian Crusade, and the Battle for Christendom, and the forthcoming Beatrice's Last Smile, A New History of the Middle Ages. Thank you for speaking with me. I found your book to be tremendously informative on this subject, and we'll get to really the heart of the matter in a question or two, but I guess I want to start with sort of the big picture. When people hear crusade, right. they probably think of the Holy Land. Maybe they think of the Reconquista in the Iberian Peninsula. They don't tend to think of southern France. So what inspired the Albigensian Crusade in that part of the world? In that sense, it's an interesting question, what you're saying that people don't think of it. Considering, for instance, the first use of the, an actual word for crusade comes from the Albigensian Crusade. It's hmm. Crusada. There is no word for crusading in Latin. I mean, the word crusader comes from, you know, the Latin crucignatus signed with the cross, but there's no word for the actual thing. It's always just called a pilgrimage, hmm. uh, which they do also in the Albigensian Crusade too. They just say it's a pilgrimage and so forth and so on, but we actually get a vernacular word in Occitane, crusada, for the first time. Anyhow, the bigger point is that it's what's so important about it is it's the first crusade of Christians guaranteed salvation through the killing of other Christians. Um, because remember, heretics are always Christians. It's easily forgotten sometimes, even in the writing on it. Ever since, say, about the failure of the second crusade in the 1140s, you could argue particularly Cistercians, and particularly a guy like Bernard Claveau, who was the great preacher of the second crusade and its failure, that there was a real obsession with heresy. I mean, you could argue the obsession with heresy was already there, but that failure seemed to enhance that there's something wrong with Christendom. And so you have particular Cistercians powerfully preaching against heresy. Now, what's interesting about this is that accusations of heresy really sort of begin in the schoolroom, though. They begin very much as accusations amongst intellectuals with each other, with the rise of what eventually will be the universities, but sort of what we call the rise of the, sort of the 12th century Reformation, you know, Renaissance, various other things. But it is the rise of a real, the intellectual life that we come to associate with the high Middle Ages and the great university systems and so forth and so on. Famously, Peter Abelard's Occlusive of Heresy. But it really sort of begins in the schoolroom. But then slowly, it sort of expands outside the schoolroom, becomes an accusation that's used against lots of ordinary Christians who themselves are trying to be exactly what the church is reforming, but they're being accused. Heresy is a way of saying you're not being Christian enough. So heresy, accusations of heresy function really importantly in the creation of Christendom, beginning in the 12th century, or certainly the high Middle Ages. And no, I'm saying accusations of heresy. Mm -hmm. I would even go so far as to say there are no real heretics in the 12th century at all. There's only accusations of people being accused of heresy. But as it builds up, and then famously, Innocent III becomes Pope, perhaps the greatest Pope in the Middle Ages. You know, he famously has a line where he says, I'm lesser than God, but greater than man. You know, he has a plentitude of power. He's, a, he's above man, but below God. And so he's the first real pope to sort of have a, this universal vision that all time and space is Christendom. But famously, in, then we have the Fourth Crusade, as you probably know, that gets misdirected and attacks Constantinople instead. Initially, Innocent III is kind of pleased. 
He thinks that Greek Christianity is going to be reunited with Latin Christianity, so forth and so on. But then he hears about what happened, about the burning and the massacre of East Romans in Constantinople, and then he's appalled, and he says it's wrong. And he, then he starts using this language again of pestilence. I should have also said, when we have particularly Cistercians again, this preaching against heresy, particularly in the late 12th century, and there's a real intensity after 1172, and you could argue that also has to do with the fall of the Kingdom of Jerusalem around 1187 to Saladin. So they use this language of pestilence, which is like Christians being eaten from within. But anyway, Innocent III said, ah, oh, clearly that pestilence is still pervasive because of what happened in Constantinople. And so that's in 1204. And then famously in 1208, one of his legates gets assassinated by the Rhone River. And he then proclaims, he doesn't accuse the Count of Toulouse, Raymond VI, of being a heretic, but he says he's defending the pestilence of heretics within his land. And he says, therefore, he gives the rights of a going on crusade to the Holy Land to go down into the lands of the Count of Toulouse in this vast region, which the papacy called Provincia. There is really no name for this world yet. I mean, even in some documents, and I like just say the lands between the Garonne and Rhone rivers, the word Languedoc doesn't come about till 1271 when it gets absorbed into the French kingdom. So anyhow. He calls these the Provencale heretici, the Provencal heretics. And he says, they're worse than Saracens. He says, go down and exterminate them, expunge them from Christendom. And you have the rights to take over the lands of the Count of Toulouse. And he proclaims that, uh, I want to say January 1208. And then really, the crusade doesn't start going until the next summer. But famously, I'd say, like the first crusade, 1095 Urban II, it gets a lot of ordinary Christians too. And I think part of this is because you get all the rights of going on crusades by just going down to what we would now call the south of France. And so to make it a little bit more complicated, I guess the reason it's called the Albigensian Crusade mm -hmm. is because it's what the northern French called, basically think of it as the word like southerner. They use the word Albigensian because the diocese of Albi is the southernmost diocese within the southernmost archdiocese of Bourges of France. And mm -hmm. so it has, it has nothing to do with the book, say, about Albi's full of heretics. Initially, it just means southerner. And so you'll find it in some documents that French knights saying, I'm just going to the world land of the Albigensians, and I just mean the land of the southerners. Yes, by about 1211, it starts to have some implication about rebel, heretic, but it's never a word ever used by anyone who lives in this southern region. It's very much a northern French term. And so we come to call it that because essentially the northern French eventually start using like the Holy War, or the Crusade or the pilgrimage into the lands of the Albigensians. And Innocent III never uses it. He always refers to them as heretics or Provencal heretics. Hence, we get back to Cathars. He never uses the word Cathar. The northern French never used the word Cathar. So then we have the famous massacre at Béziers in 1209. I would actually argue it's not until that massacre that the whole idea that it's really a holy war against heresy really takes off. I think it's the appeal of crusading to begin with that's so powerful, that you actually have these rights of crusading by just going down south, mm. <laughs> by just going to Toulouse, to the Toulousan. And I think that's why so many ordinary people go on it as well as, you know, Northern French Knight. And also, eventually, you know, in the first summer, the Count of Toulouse signs himself, becomes a crusader. And a lot of Southerners become crusaders. I mean, Italy perhaps not be attacked. 
And then after 1209, it shifts and changes, you know, after the, the destruction of the Carcassonne as well and all that. And then the war goes on for another 20 years. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot to say about that, but then it continued 20 years until 1229. But it is, you're right, it's unusual that it's not as well known when it's in many ways almost an epitome of what it is to be a crusader. I would argue it's the logical outcome of crusading from 1095 to me. And it affects, broadly speaking, other ideas about crusading, you know, until the 15th century. So, I mean, then there are more crusades against heretics, but also, you know, it has other implications after that. And of course, you could argue, certainly the Inquisition, lowercase i, in the Middle Ages, unquestionably is the outcome of the Abidjan's Crusade. Gregory IX institutes Inquisition. He calls them Inquisitions theoretical depravity, which is what they should be called in, when we talk about the medieval Inquisition. The capital I Inquisition, like the Spanish Inquisition, is like early modern, late medieval. And that's set up around the first time is that 1233, says when he starts talking about we need Dominicans to uh, Inquisition to radical depravity because he says the serpent of heresies come back. So the Inquisition itself is a logical outcome of the Albigen's crusade. Can we take a step back and talk about heresy a little bit more? You talked about yeah. how accusations of heresy are central to this. What constituted heresy at this time? Can you give me some specific examples? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. What's so fascinating is how it changes and shifts. And this is what, again, one of these things. I mean, maybe I should give you to help out to say what it's not, is to say what <laughs> the classic model when people talk about cathars is. Would that help? Sure. Sadly, which is ironic that it's more English-speaking authors and German or maybe German too, less than the French, despite the fact that the French everywhere in southern France now say pay the Qatar, you know, the Qatar country. Don't subscribe to this. More French scholars agree with scholars like me. But the bigger point is, the usual argument is, there's this vast Cathar church, right? And they say church, which has bishops, which supposedly has a hierarchy of people called the perfects. Maybe it came into Christendom in the 11th century from missionaries from the East Roman, the Byzantine Empire, Bogomil missionaries, maybe other dualists. It's certainly, though, by 1170, it's this, and I mean, this vast counter-church, right? From the North Sea to the Mediterranean, mostly focused around what we now think of as Northern Italy and Southern France, but it's a genuine counter-church with a theology in these perfects. None of it's true. Total lie. It didn't never existed. We can get to why it was created. It was created in the 19th century. But why this is important is, and why I'm bringing it up like that is, it presupposes people self-consciously identifying as heretics. When people write about a Cathar church, they presuppose people self-consciously knowing that they are heretics going against the church, right? Nobody like that, I would argue, exists in the 12th century, meaning that we have lots of accusations, particularly, as I said, from Cistercians. And don't get me wrong, the people making these accusations take them very seriously. But particularly one of the important accusations is, and even the St. Third says this, when he proclaims the Abinant Crusade, is that people don't know they're poisoned from heresy within. I think Bernard Claveau says, it's like a cancer that eats you from within, poisons you from within, and you don't know your disease with it. And what they mean is, and I do think this has to do with a lot of the shifting ideas about what it means to be a Christian from the 12th century onwards, that's shifting from the early Middle Ages, and particularly this idea of like Imitatio Christi being like Christ is I think lots of ordinary Christians are trying. I mean, they're actually responding to what the church wants them to be like. The trouble is, 
they're doing it in ways the church doesn't like. And part of what the 12th century is trying to say is only the church can define what it is to be holy and what it is to be this. So, so many of these accusations are simply against people who think they're Christian, who think they're being very good Christians, who think they're holy, but the church is saying, no, you can't have this, you can't do this. And why I bring it up, like what I'm trying to get across here is that part of when we talk about the Cathars and even the idea of heretics themselves as a self-identified entity, it's much more a creation of 19th century scholarship. And why, why I'm bringing that up is, is that if we were to talk about the history of the Jews, one would argue that, and to use an expression that another scholar once said, there were living Jews in the 12th century. So it doesn't matter what scholars write about them in the 19th and 20th centuries or 21st centuries. So that's historiography. There were always living Jews. So no matter what the field debates and we say about how Jews existed or the treatment of Jews, the argument, logical argument, which is those who want to argue for heresy as a real entity as well as Catharism, is that there were living Cathars or living heretics in the 12th century. I would argue they weren't. They're a creation of 19th century historiography, of scholars trying to explain the very questions you're asking me. And so they explain it by inventing Catharism. They explain it by saying all these things lead to a connection. And why this is important, it means that heretics like that don't exist outside historiography, right? They don't exist outside what historians write. There are no living Cathars in the 12th century. There are no living heretics. If what we mean is someone subconsciously thinking and doing things they know may lead to their death, their persecution, or themselves being condemned by the church. And what I mean by that is, therefore, all these accusations of heresy in the 12th century get dismissed. Most people just ignore them. They have no real effect. That's why it's so profound that we go from a schoolroom accusation that gets more broadly to 1208, where an accusation that began in the schoolroom now becomes a justification for mass murder. So that is a profound shift in culture. And why I'm now going further, I would say by about the last decade of the crusade and then into the 1230s, we generally do have some people who self-consciously understand that what they're saying and doing could lead to their death, could lead to the least confiscation of property, but death. And I would argue you only get, for want of a better word, living heretics, like people who consciously know they're heretics and identify as that after about 1220, and then certainly the early inquisition. So certainly by 1250, we actually have people, men, women, and children, who generally we could call heretics. They're not Cathars, but who generally understand themselves as doing things that may lead to their death and so forth and so on. No one like that exists in the 12th century. So again, having said that, that doesn't take away from the genuine seriousness of the church, particularly, as I said, Cistercians, but popes and bishops, accusing wide scattershot almost of people doing and doing things they don't like about what it is to be Christian. This is, again, I think why it's such a profound question, because as I said, it's, it's all about how an accusation that even in the 1180s, 1190s, most people just go, okay, fine, you know, brush it off, doesn't have any effect, huge effect on them, even though we, you know, we can see a fervor of this intensity. And then, you know, by the time we get to 1208, it's a justification for mass murder. And the Pope even says that they have to be expunged, they have to be wiped out. And, you know, part of the argument he makes is that if we don't wipe them out, we too, this is where we get back to the use of pestilence or plague. If we don't wipe them out, we too may be poisoned with it. Now, having said that, what makes a heretic shifts and changes, you know, during the years of the war. So by the time we get to 1215, 1220, as I said, there's different ideas. And obviously the Inquisition has, again, different ideas. But this is why it's a profound question. 
And as I say, I, this is why I think, you know, the 19th century scholars weren't fools. They generally were brilliant people, but they were trying to explain this. And they explained it by creating, if you like, a religion. They created Catharism. How did that happen? Like you said, it would be bizarre to argue that Jews didn't exist or to manufacture them out of nothing. How did the scholars create this entire group of Cathars? Part of we get back to we get back to Albigensians. Okay. <laughs> it's because certainly you could say during the 17th and 18th centuries, when we talk certainly about, sorry, say the conflict between Protestants and Catholics, you could say in the Americas and in what was then Europe, what became Europe, it was partially that they used the word Albigensians. And so for Protestants, Albigensians were early Protestants. So they were martyrs to the cause. I think in the first edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica from like whatever it is, 1760 or something, there's a listing for Albigensians that sort of says they are like, you know, the first Protestants and they suffered under the, the Catholic Church, persecution, so on and so on. Whereas for Catholic scholars, the Albigensians were like also early Protestants, but were heretics. But they used the word Albigensian very powerfully. So what these 19th century scholars were doing, particularly it began really with German scholars, was that it has to all to do with, if you like, the rise of the modern university, is that what they were doing is they were saying, I mean, we get back, and this is where, not to get boring here, but this is important, <laughs> is that it's all about that the modern university, beginning roughly around the 1840s, the idea of the modern university, and this is important because the American university system is based on the German model, or came to be influenced by the German model, is that religion, they decided... At first, we have this particularly these scholars saying that no, religion has to go away from confessional culture, right? It doesn't matter whether you're Jewish, Catholic or Protestant or whatever. Religion makes no role. We have to have scientific history and the scientific study of religion. And so particularly these scholars, and this is the world when we talk about the invention of religions, when scholars write like this. So they invent Hinduism, Confucianism, Manichaea, if you like, and paganism as well. Catharism is a crucial creation here. And so by throwing away Albigensian, they searched for, and as far as they could see, they could see sort of words and links. Now, Cathar was a real word. It's actually in the Council of Nicaea. It means like schismatics, Christians who might come back. But it still was a pretty obscure word, Cathar. But these 19th century scholars picked this word because it had no connotations of religion, as in Protestantism or Catholicism. And part of what these scholars were saying that religion could be studied objectively was also their obsession coming out of the history of Christianity was that you, they had to search for Eastern origins of Christianity. So hence, they became obsessed with searching for Eastern origins of things like Catholic. And they had to explain why does the church do this? Why the Aborigines Crusade? Why the Inquisition? And so they pieced together all these various references to heretics which don't use the word Cathar, but then called it that. And so it was a way of trying to explain the rise of these accusations. They chose a word, Cathar, Catharism, that had no old meanings attached to it from the 17th and 18th century. So to, to them, it was a new word that was scientific. It was a way of tying all this together. And that's, you know, as I say, so it's a total creation of the 19th century. And it kind of, I, look, I have to say a brilliant creation. I mean, it shouldn't surprise you that many of these great scholars who helped invent Catharism were also powerful Dreyfusards, right? They were often very influenced by, you know, themselves were Protestant, ironically. And when I say Dreyfusards, you know, they were against the accusations against Alfred Dreyfus, right, in the French Republic. 
so they you know they were very much against they wanted a less clerical france but also they wanted the scientific study of the past and religion and so catharism you'd be surprised how powerfully integrated into this intellectual world and how important this creation of it was in the way in which we now think of the creation of the modern study of religion is a creation of these guys there's a little paradox here <laughs> is that at the same time when we talk about the rise of the modern study of history though the two were similar but historians decided religion just couldn't be studied that it was it just to use the, the famous line like a very famous american book it just wasn't objective particularly german historians and then american historians say around beginning in the 1880s thought religion was something you just didn't study this is the paradox i would argue about heresy and average is that up until the 1970s let's just use medieval historians no serious professionally trained medieval historian studied religion and so for all intents and purposes the study of heresy so we have this wonderful creation this invention of catharism which is like a modernist invention it's like incredibly clever like brilliant guys invented this thing just calcifies that and so that's part of why it's, i think it's lingered so long is that because no one really tinkered with it except maybe priests and vicars you know, that was the idea. Religion was only something that priests and vicars did, maybe. And so proper historians never touched religion. So it's not until the 1970s that you actually get people in English finally writing about heresy again and things like that. Ironically, the British model is very different, but they too ended up in the same idea that religion was something we don't study. And so, again, it's sort of this interesting question of why do we even still have to debate something that so obviously doesn't exist? I can promise you now there is no evidence for Catharism, yet why do people still talk about it? Because for all intents and purposes, it's what, 50, 60 years? It's like, that's not that long in, <laughs> in the way in which one debates things. And I, I would still say there's an undergirding assumption that religion is not a topic that historians themselves study because it seems unable to be debated or argued about. So I know it's a long answer to you, but I'm trying to get across why Catharism exists only, we say historiography, it, it exists only in the books people have written about it since the 19th century. It is not a medieval thing. It's a totally modern invention to try and explain the past, but it's become so powerful, it's got a life of its own that scholars can't seem to break out of it, or lots of scholars, particularly English speaking scholars. And as you write, that's why the example of the Jews is important is that obviously there's been lots of histographic debates about medieval Judaism, right? But everybody knows Jews exist. <laughs> <laughs> no one debates that. The question is, but there seems to be no evidence that heretics exist, I would argue. There's mm -hmm. no evidence whatsoever. Accusations, absolutely, but no evidence until we get into the 13th century. And then you could start arguing the question saying. So that's why the Abidjan Crusade is so powerful, because we're really talking about a war of extermination, which is what the Pope says, of something that didn't exist. <laughs> and so that's what's so shocking and powerful about it. And part of it is he even says is that people don't know they're infected by it. So that's why we have to kill them. And yeah, that's in the early yeah. years. And then, as I said, it shifts and changes after 20 years about who, what's a heretic and so on and so on. You've anticipated my last question because it, it does go back to the field of history before I read your book, I read another account of the Albigensian Crusade by a very prominent historian. You can tell me who's that. <laughs> uh, Jonathan Sumption. Oh, well, he's, yeah, Lord Sumption. 
<laughs> and it was very much the Cathars are real historic figures. Before this conversation, I, I went to the Wikipedia article, as all of my students would. And there's which a full... Which you shouldn't do, which you shouldn't do. <laughs> there's an extensive overview of the Cathars as a real historic group. And then there is a small blurb towards the end about contemporary suspicions about whether they actually existed or not. So it's essentially a footnote to the larger article. As historians, how do you go about correcting these essentially myths, yeah, these falsities myth. that, that run myth. through the historic record, when it, it feels like from a public perception, we're drawn to these good stories in a way where we, we don't even want to accept the alternative. By the way, just as an, a side note, this is interesting, really interesting question. That Wikipedia entry is almost totally based on the great, it's the great edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, the great 11th edition, which was the last one published in Britain from 1910 which was written by a guy called Frederick Coinybear, who was one of the great scholars of Catharism who helped invent it in the late 19th century, but also wrote a book defending Alfred Dreyfus. Like he was a powerful like believer in freedom of religion and so forth and so on. And, not, and so he, he sort of very much often identified the um, Cathars with being like Jews. And so that's hence that's why they were persecuted. So that's, oh no, there's no question that many of these authors of the late 19th century very much saw the Cathars as being like Jews, and so their persecution was related to that. And that's what part of the, why they, they themselves were so powerfully, and Cornybeer was English, but he, he wrote a book defending Alfred Dreyfus in English. And also that Encyclopedia Britannica article actually says, he even says, this is the only way to explain the persecution of the church. Now he also goes on, which is another very 19th century idea, is that what the Cathars were, and you'll find this in other books, and Assumption sort of has a touch of this, isn't it? is that really what they are, are secretly Manichaeans from the 4th century or 3rd century who went underground, we have no evidence of this, but then come back. Because obviously some of the accusations used in the 12th century by the church is that these are new Arians or these are new Manichaeans. And often scholars, I think, have confused the two ideas. Yes, Manichaeism was a dualist. Many is in, what, 1220, he first has his revelations in the Iranian plateau. And, you know, famously, Augustine of Hippo was a Manichaean. But the question is what the church is doing, though. And also, this is how accusations of heresy work, too. It's arguing we are the same church as under Constantine the Great when he converted to Christianity. Therefore, heresy is important to us because it shows a continuity of the church. It shows that we are exactly the same church 800 years ago or something or other. And so heresy also functions as a really powerful way of defining historical continuity for what we call the reforming church of the 12th century. And that's why you'll find there's very few accusations of heresy. There are some, not, but hardly any in the, 12, in the early Middle Ages. Heresy functions very differently. It gets mentioned, so that would be too strong to say it doesn't get mentioned, but it sort of doesn't get mentioned in any way, shape or form like it does from 12th century onwards. But that's why I think it's really, that Wikipedia entry, it's because it's out of copyright. <laughs> it's almost totally <laughs> a rewrite. Oh, this is quite common with medieval entries in Wikipedia, they're often rewrites of the Encyclopedia Britannica from 1910, which is a masterpiece. You know, it's one of the last great ones where it's got George Bernard Shaw, like great writers wrote the articles, but obviously it's wrong. It's out of date. <laughs> and so that's why, you know, I have problems with people using Wikipedia for medieval stuff. But the bigger point is what you're getting at. And I do think it's important. I think a lot of people who have invested careers in that in believing this, I think 
it's a really interesting example of when you point stuff out or when like, the evidence is point that scholars just, I really do think, have a hard time accepting that they must be wrong. These are scholars I deeply admire, some of them, many of them. They've spent 40 years arguing this. And part of the fascinating thing is it's as though they haven't read the sources. Even if they've written books on it or something, it is somewhat self-perpetuating. And I also think partially it is, it's a really good argument for why we have something like the Aboriginal Crusade, why we get the Inquisition, why we have this persecution. Because once you take away something like the Cathars, I think it's a more interesting story and more tragic, but it's also harder to explain. Because what you end up talking about is how do we go from an accusation that people can dismiss to an accusation that causes mass murder, to an accusation that some people end up adopting as their own identity. That actually people end up adopting, if you like, the persecutors end up adopting the identity of what the persecutors say about them. And that's sort of a profound shift that unquestionably starts taking place from 1220 onwards. You see it really in the last decade of the Abingdon's Crusade, and then certainly the Inquisition, you see it going. And then, of course, later on in the 13th and the 14th centuries, it's a very different question what heresy functions and how it works out. But when you talk about myth, we get back to the other question I was just telling you is that, and I really do mean it's not till 1970, the 70s, 1970s, if no one writes about heresy or religion for more than 100 years in the professional field, you have this sort of leftover ideas, for want of a better word, still by brilliant scholars, but leftover ideas that people just pick up again. So it's, again, to question these things in the context of scholarship is only re quite recent. I even say only really since the beginning of this century, powerfully has it been questioned about the existence of this. And I think it's a really profound point. If, if the most famous heresy of the Middle Ages not just doesn't exist, never existed, and that to argue for it it's one of the rare instances you could say in historical research, you can say it's wrong. Not just you got a little bit wrong, it's wrong. That's a really rare thing. <laughs> and I only bring this up because you probably know the philosopher Karl Popper, you know, and his theory of like science, but also what he really means, like verification, truth. When he talks about falsification, he says, you know, any field where something can definitely be proven wrong, falsified, shows it's a science and that's a great thing right because it feels it can't be falsified you know and he, he's not dismissive of metaphysics or literary criticism or psychoanalysis he said but that shows they're not scientific fields because they can't be falsified therefore no matter what they say they can never be proven wrong but he says it's, it's, it's really rare to find a field where you can prove something wrong so i've come to think of history as a science in that sense not like a 19th century science which is what the people who invented history or created the modern field of history said it was a science, but in that sense. So I think it's a really big deal to actually say there are no cathars. It's like a really esoteric question that ends up leading you to say the nature of truth and what it means, I think, to live in a liberal democracy. I really do. It's a rare instance of being able to say in the past that something is just never existed and it's just wrong. And usually you don't say Usually you don't have debates about, shall we say, in history that something's wrong. You just say, well, that's maybe a different interpretation if we found evidence. No, this is a case of it just doesn't exist. And the fact that it's so powerful and has shaped so much of the field, it's just a profound, I think, a profound question and a, a profound nature of what truth means. I, that's why I think it's such a big debate. Or rather, I think that's why the myth lingers, because I think what you're getting at is about the nature of truth. And I think some scholars have invested, you know, 
it's a lot to ask someone to say they've been wrong for 40 years or 20 years. <laughs> I do. I think that. I think, I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm sympathetic to that. I'm not sympathetic, though, when the arguments just keep being recycled or that people avoid the question. And you'll find lots of scholarly books by English-speaking scholars where they just avoid the question and act as though there's been no debate. And that I find problematic because then, you know, not to get in our current cultural moment, but it is problematic to me that, yeah, and when I say truth, I don't, I actually think truth is always outside the reach of the historian. I always think you can never quite grasp it, but it doesn't mean I don't think it exists. I think it's a search. It is something that you can search for. And ironically, I mean, I mean, I say this because I'm just about to publish a huge book on um, the history of the medieval world, which is sort of, has a, has a section on Kavars, but I hope is shaped by some of these ideas I'm talking about. And that's a perfect note to end on. It's one of those situations where you go into a topic thinking, this is 800 years old, this is intellectually satisfying, but quite removed from the present. And then you realize that, no, 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 this is as relevant and timely as ever. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I should say, I should have said when you said earlier, Sumption's book's an excellent book. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think Jonathan Sumption, I mean, remember, if you don't know, he, you know, he was, I think, the chief justice, the high court of Britain. So he was a lawyer all his life. And, he, you know, he wrote like a four volume history of the Hundred Years War recently. But it's a very good book. I what it's like from 76, 78, mm-hmm. something like that. It's a very good book. And I still think it's a very good book. Having said that, <laughs> it does presuppose the Cathars, just like, you know, the great American scholar, Joseph Strayer wrote, I think it what's called the Albigensian Crusades in 72. Again, he's a good example of this. He had no real interest in history of religion. He's like the great epitome of the American model I just gave you. So he sort of briefly talks about Cathars, but what he's really interested in, he says, is a great scar that tears across French civilizational and sort of coming out of the Cold War, he's fascinated, like, how the Inquisition is, he even says it's something worse than the authoritarian regime, so forth and so on. But again, it's a book published in 1972. So the game we get, it's only in the 70s we start getting all this kind of stuff. Well, perfect. Dr. Pegg, thank you very much for your time, for all of your work on the Cathars, and I look forward to your your new book on medieval worlds. So yes, um, I appreciate I, you speaking with me. I thank you. I'm, I hope I helped. <laughs> When I get to the end of an episode like this one, I don't know whether to be really excited or really angry. The excited part of me is invigorated by rediscovering, time and again, how much more there always is to learn. How boring would it be if, after reading one book on a subject, or God help us, a single Wikipedia article, we knew everything there is to know? One of the biggest challenges of teaching younger students about history is getting them to understand that the discipline is not about memorizing facts, but about interpreting the available evidence, and that credible, qualified, and highly capable historians can arrive at different conclusions. It's exciting to see that messy, contentious pursuit of historical truth playing out in all its gory detail. But if I'm being honest, I'm also pissed. It's 2023. How can the evidence clearly speak to the fact that Cathars never existed 
And yet you could make a good faith effort to gain a functional understanding of the Albigensian Crusade and know nothing of that. How can historians not get together, figure this out, hash this out decisively? And I'm also mad because I'm embarrassed. When I was preparing the Via Podiensis book, I spent a ton of time working through books on each of the major conflicts that reshaped this part of France, including, of course, the Albigensian Crusade. I read Lord Sumption's book, cover to cover, in part because I had previously read his book on pilgrimage. I trusted him. I also had Mark's book, but I only popped around to selected moments via the index, aiming to complement the bigger picture overview I had gained from Sumption. If I had slowed down, read Mark's work in full at the time, I would have gotten an accurate read on things. Instead, I have to acknowledge that I perpetuated the problem, including the Cathar myth in the first edition of the guide. It won't be there in the second. Finally, I'm angry because I can see how relevant this all remains in this current moment and time. It's more challenging than ever to find common ground on an agreed-upon set of facts. Feelings, opinions, conspiracies, and outright deception all masquerade as hard evidence. Truth is an endangered species. And as in the Albigensian Crusade, it's also easy to see how willful distortions are being deliberately manipulated into dire threats that imperil us all. Dire threats that require firm and decisive action. So the Albigensian Crusade makes me mad. At myself, at historians, certainly at the church. It reflects incredibly poorly on the church. Kill them all, let God sort them out. So allow me to end the episode on a more positive note. A year ago, my students and I spent the night in Las Caban. We attended the pilgrim mass in the church, which Franz and I talked about. The old priest, who has offered this service for years and years, methodically came to every pilgrim, knelt before them, and bathed one of their feet, carrying on this long tradition of service and humility following in the practice of Jesus. I winced every time he gingerly lowered himself creaky, aged knees settling onto the hard floor. But no matter, he continued, undeterred, as he does every night. Later that night, I strolled around the village. As I turned a corner, I was surprised to encounter him again. Not in the church, but rather in the garden outside his home. Once again, I saw him kneel, tending to a different flock, as the flowers in his garden erupted in colorful bloom in the middle of summer. As a child, I saw the church as it operated in the Albigensian Crusade, oriented towards rooting out the pernicious weeds that didn't belong. As an adult, I would like to believe in the church of the Las Caban priest, who seems more focused on tending and nurturing and caring. And yeah, I know the metaphor breaks down, given that the priest must do his fair share of weeding as well, but... <laughs> Let's look past that. Makes for a damn fine ending otherwise, and it's time to wrap this up. That's all for this episode. Thanks again to Franz Fair for sharing stories from the road. You can find her at onfootinfrance.com with links to purchase her memoir in both English and French. 
Thanks as well to Dr. Mark Gregory Pegg. You can find his book, A Most Holy War, The Albigensian Crusade and the Battle for Christendom, for sale at online bookstores everywhere. His new book, Beatrice's Last Smile, A New History of the Middle Ages, will be published this July. All episodes of the Camino Podcast can be found on Spotify, Google, Apple, and SoundCloud. You can reach me at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com and through the Camino Podcast Facebook page. Thanks as always for listening. Back again next week. Really, next week. Next week.